So if you uh, have not been with us uh, or are uh, kind of sporadically joining us this fall, first of all, how dare you? I'm kidding. Second of all, uh, we are in the middle of the book of Nehemiah. We are studying this uh, wonderful, little-known, lesser-visited uh, uh, book of Nehemiah. This book of Nehemiah is the last historical thing to take place to the Israelites, to the people of God in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus. It's the last historical story. It's the last thing that we read about that they did before the 450 years of silence before the arrival of Jesus. And so very fittingly, we will be studying this book all fall and we will get right up into our Advent series where we study the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. And I hope what you feel each week or each time you, you join us, I hope what you feel as we study this last historical narrative of the Old Testament people of God before the coming of Jesus. I hope you feel at the end of each story, at the end of each passage, man, we need a Messiah. Like this, this is, Nehemiah is great, but he's not Jesus. And there's still so much broken and there's still so much aching and there's still so much longing and there's, there's, it's just, it's little drops of, man, it, there's gotta be more than this. The system is not working. The system is broken. We need a grander redemption than Nehemiah could bring. And here's the story of Nehemiah. If you haven't been joining us or you need a little context, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. God's people had been taken captive. They were in Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian empire got taken over by the Persian empire. God's people were now residing in the Persian empire. A small group of people had set, uh, set, been set free to come back to Jerusalem and begin the rebuild of God's capital city, the temple and the city and the walls. That was Ezra and Zerubbabel. Nehemiah's back home as the cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes I, and he gets word from the rebuilding front, on the home front of the rebuilding of the city of God, that there's been a pause on the work front and that the walls have been reburned to the ground. So Nehemiah is in, in his you know, posh life, living in the, in, the, in the capital, living in the mansion, living in the palace of the king, and he's the cupbearer and he's got a great life and he hears it's bad on the home front. So he gets this burning in his soul, he gets this burning in his bones, and he says, I am to be the one that returns home to Jerusalem to finish the rebuild, to restore Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls and bring vibrancy back to the city of God. So he travels across the known world, he travels across the Middle East, he arrives back home at Jerusalem's door, and he sets to rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And here's what we've been looking at since Nehemiah returned home, is that if you're going to be like Nehemiah, if you're going to take the burning in your bones, if you're going to take the burning in your soul and, and say, Lord, I want to follow you on the call that you have of my life. I want to follow you on the vision that you have of my life, which all of you have, by the way. And if you want to step into that journey and say, Lord, I've got this burning and I want to be a part of this kingdom and I want to help the rebuilding. If you do that, you will face what Nehemiah faced, which is a lot of pain and a lot of resistance and a lot of heartache and a lot of frustration and a lot of sin and so here's what we're looking at each week as we, as we look at God's vision for Nehemiah. What is God's vision for you? And how can you relate to the vision that Nehemiah had from God and what he faced when he followed that vision? So that's what we're looking at. Do you have a vision for your life that's bigger than you? And what should you expect if you say yes to Jesus to step into that vision? So we've looked at a lot of external resistance. He's got some haters, people throwing shade at him. He hates, or people that hate the project of rebuilding Jerusalem. Sambalot and Tobiah, they're kind of the, the main haters on the home front. There's a lot of surrounding people who don't want to see Jerusalem restored. They're starting to fight. They're starting wars. There's a famine in the land. There's all kinds of external resistance going on to this rebuilding of Jerusalem project that Nehemiah is on. 
This morning, we're going to look at a little bit of internal resistance, that it's not only resistance from outside of the Israelite camp, there's some internal resistance going on as well, and we should expect it too. So here's where we are, Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to read 13 verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. As Nehemiah talking, he wrote this firsthand, wrote it in the first person. Here's what Nehemiah tells us about the internal resistance. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly outside, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we were able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest that made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. It's the word of the Lord. So first... I'm kidding, that's what Nehemiah does. I don't even really know what that meant, but he shook out the fold of his garment, so say amen. Kidding. So here's what's going on. Here's, here's, how, here's how the storyline just played out. Nehemiah returns with his troop back home to the Jerusalem front, and most of the people that he brought with him were of a wealthier estate. They were of a nobler class. They were of a more uh, well-endowed um, financial situation. They come back home as kind of the leaders of this, and they were Jewish. They were Israelites, but they had been in captivity, and they had worked their way up, and they came back with Nehemiah on this building front. When they get back to Jerusalem, we read this a few weeks ago, when they start the rebuilding of the stone-by-stone stone rebuilding of the wall, the people that gave up their day jobs to to come and rebuild the wall were local Israelites who had not been taken into captivity but were kind of left in the ruins of the city. And we read this in chapter three. It was farmers, it was bakers, it was perfumers. I don't know what that is. It was goldsmiths. These people were giving up their day jobs, their livelihoods, and saying, I will take an unpaid break from my day job, from my vocation, and I will come and I will help rebuild this city. Okay, so those people that had given up their livelihood to come rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they still had bills to pay. 
They still had to provide food for their family. They still had to work their ground or have pay the workers to work their fields and their vineyards. They still had to pay the king's tax to Persia, which was very expensive. Some people think it was up to 70% of their income was their tax to the king. And so all these people are going, hey, Nehemiah, we gave up our livelihoods to come and help rebuild the city. And when we did that, this was normal practice for the day, we had to go borrow some money, not from the bank, but from our fellow Israelites who had money. And those fellow Israelites who had returned from Persia, they had money. And so the people who were working on the wall said, hey, I've got this vineyard, I've got this field, I've got this estate, I can't pay my bills right now, can I borrow some money from you? And, and as, as the debt, I will let you take ownership of my vineyard, I will let you take ownership of my estate, but I need some money from you to be able to pay my life off. And so those, those wealthy people from Persia that had come back home, they said, sure. Take, yeah, we'll give you some money to pay your, the king's tax. We'll give you some money to, to pay for your family's bills. What Nehemiah didn't know is that those people, those wealthy Israelites who had come from Persia were exacting an enormous interest on those debts. And not only were they, were they enacting an enormous debt of interest on the interest, an enormous amount of interest on the debt, they were also saying, hey, I know the monthly payment's coming up. You can't really make the monthly payment. I tell you what, instead of just kind of put, kicking the can down the road, how about you give us your son? And we'll take ownership of your son and he'll work for us until you can kind of buy him back. Oh, is the next month still really hard because you still don't have an income and you can't make ends meet? How about you give us your daughters too? And we will take your daughters and they will be enslaved to us and we will treat them however we feel like treating them. We will work them and we will do whatever we want to with them. So this is the situation of verses one through five. The people are coming to Nehemiah and saying, hey, Nehemiah, we joined your vision, bro. We jumped on your vision for Jerusalem and now we had to take loans out. And now because we took these loans out, we now don't just have heavy monthly interest payments. We are giving up our entire estate. We're giving up our family. We're giving up our children. We can't pay the bills. Nehemiah is outraged. Look at verse six and seven. This is what he's heard. He's heard all their complaints. Verse six and seven, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. What's he angry about? What's Nehemiah angry about? Why is he so angry at the nobles and the officials and the wealthy and of the higher class that would be doing this to the working class? There's two things that he's angry about. There's kind of two layers here, both important. And the first layer is this, an enormous part of Nehemiah's anger and his outrage is the social effect this is having on the city. This is affecting the society. This is a social injustice. This is a social issue that is affecting the livelihood of the city and Nehemiah would not stand for it. See, because debt on people, when people are underneath the weight of debt, it's way more than just, man, it's gonna be tough to make ends meet this month with my finances. Book of Proverbs chapter 22 says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. So here's what that means, is that it's not just a financial relationship that you are in, it's not just a financial relationship that these people had with the lenders, they had become enslaved to them. This was a enslaved relationship to the lender. The people who had to borrow were not just having a tough time making their monthly payments. The debt kept mounting, the payments kept not being enough, and as long as they kept owing something, the lender could say, give me more, give me more. You owe me more, you owe me more. They were enslaved to the lender. As long as you were in debt to something, as long as you were in debt to someone, as long as you owe something to someone, they have control over you. 
And here's what Nehemiah is, is mad about. And here's what it, it, it kind of amplifies his anger is this was kind of the way business was done. This was like normal in the ancient world. There were Old Testament laws to prohibit this kind of abuse from going on. And he's saying, hey, you're doing this to your fellow Israelite. You're doing this to someone who, is, who worships the same God as you. You can't treat your brothers like this. You're enslaving them. You're taking their sons and taking their daughters. You own them now. So imagine with me for a minute, like use your redeemed holy imagination and like go back to this setting. Go back to the monotonous, laborious rebuilding of this wall. Go back to the middle class, blue collar workers who were like giving up their perfuming that day, giving up their baking those months and saying, hey, I'm, I'm gonna not make money because I've got this vision that Nehemiah has convinced me of. I wanna rebuild this city. And now I need to borrow some money to pay my bills. But the people that I'm borrowing money from, they're my fellow Israelites. They should be treating me fairly with justice, but they're exacting this enormous interest. And now they own my daughter. Now they own my land, they own my inheritance. So go there in your mind and answer these questions. What do you think the morale was like of those working Israelites? What kind of members of society in the new Jerusalem do you think they were gonna be? What kind of like Jerusalem neighbors were they gonna be in the city of Jerusalem once it was, well, like what, what would happen once the city's done and now they don't own anything in Jerusalem, they don't even own anything outside of Jerusalem and they're neighbors with these new nobles and new wealthy folks from Persia and they've gotta like go to the same synagogue worship as them. Like how do you think they would, how do you, what do you think this is doing to like the fabric of society in Jerusalem? What kind of vibrant city life, what kind of flourishing do you think these people would wanna help create in the new Jerusalem? The Bible has a word for this. The Bible has this really power-packed word that talks about this holy, righteous city, this holy, righteous community, this, this place where all of the good and all of the justice and all of the righteousness would reign and would flow. It's called shalom. And what Nehemiah has set out to build is the new Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem. Like Jerusalem, the holy city was supposed to be a place where shalom and peace and flourishing and beauty reigned. And so here's what I want you to try to connect. Nehemiah has given up everything. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had a posh life. He had a great life. He had a great retirement. He gave up all of that to come back to Jerusalem with this vision to rebuild Jerusalem and say, will you help me rebuild this city of God? He's left everything. How do you think he felt about finding out about what these people were doing to their brothers and sisters? I'm trying to build a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. I'm trying to bring shalom back to Jerusalem. You are destroying the very foundation of, of the society that I have left everything to build. That's what Nehemiah is feeling. Now, I'm no economist. I won't pretend to be. But like, what if I told you that this kind of, like, this kind of, these kinds of systems, like this, this kind of reality of what Proverbs 22 talks about, that the borrower is the slave to the lender, and like this whole system creates massive amounts of injustice how do you feel about the fact that uh, the world debt number, I heard this after the first service, an actual economist told me this, thank you. Uh, the world debt number is currently, in, the world is in $350 trillion of debt. And so how do you feel about like the system that you think that's creating across the globe? Like if, if, if the borrower is the slave to the lender and there's $350 trillion of debt in the world, how do you think the world's doing? Or how about in this city? 
Like, how do you feel about the places in this city, the kinds of businesses in this city that do this very thing to people still? I'm not talking about places only that like have insane amounts of interest rates, like no interest for three months and then the interest goes up to like 70%. That is a version of this. I'm talking about the places that intentionally make people's debt unpayable, intentionally and greedily prey upon the poor, not just for their money, but so they can control them and enslave them. How do you feel about that in Nashville? Do you care about this for the city, like the system that, 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 it, that like we are a part of, the city that we have been called to make beautiful, the city that we have been called to set the captives free in? How do you feel about that happening down the street? And I don't have all the answers, but if you knew that this was going on, if you knew that there was places in this city where this was happening, do you think you would care? And maybe like get out of your own skin for a minute and like put on someone else's shoes. Do you think if you knew people who were underneath this kind of weight, who were enslaved to the lender, do you think if you knew people that were affected by this, do you think they would have a right to be angry about this? Like, can you imagine their perspective for just a minute and think they can't get out. They're stuck in the system that has, was built to enslave them. That if you walked up on Jerusalem and saw this relationship going on and you said, man, that's really great. I hope you guys can rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That'll never happen as long as this is going on, but good luck with that. Like, do you, think you, do you think you'd be moved by it? Do you think you would have any radar for it to go, wait, 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 wait. We want Jerusalem. We want, we want shalom to reign. We want righteousness. We want justice to roll down. We, we want this to be a vibrant, flourishing city. But this whole thing over here might stop that. Oh, well. Like, do you think you would have a heart or a set of eyes to care about it? Do you want a city where the poor don't get preyed on? Do you want that? And do you know that the kind of city that you do want can exist as long as that's happening? If you care about it, we have these ministry partners at this church, organizations, beautiful people that are like trying to push back darkness in these very pockets and in these very places. One of them is an organization called Corner to Corner run by Will Acuff. You've heard us talk about it before if you've been around. It's beautiful. He is trying with his whole team and staff to try to push against this very thing that would not just give education and give training and, and teach finances and business development to people, to the poor, but also like let those people stand up with the dignity that is theirs in the Lord and say, hey, we're gonna help you not just get out of this slavery, we're gonna actually help you never get fall prey to it again. He cares about it. He cares about the systems that are being built in this city. How about Mary Trapnell? I can't talk about Mary Trapnell for very long, I'm gonna start crying again. Nashville anti-human trafficking, how do you feel about the people that like they are in debt and the way that they have had to pay off their debt in this city is with their body? How do you feel about that? And that Mary runs into that darkness and gets them out and brings the light of healing to their trauma and their abuse and their enslavement and says, you're worth more than this. Let us help you stand on your feet again so that you never have to fall prey to that ever again in your life. Do you care about that? And if, and if you do, here, I just gave you two places to go run into the darkness and say, I want, I want this city to be beautiful and it can't be beautiful as long as systems like this are happening. And here are two places to go and make, to go fight against that. So every one of you should be volunteering by the end of the day with one of them, okay? No, I'm kidding. But someone, something like that should, like, does it, does it move anything in you? Because it moved Nehemiah. That's what Nehemiah's mad about on the first level. Nehemiah is mad about the systemic issues that would go, this will not help us create Jerusalem. It will not work. But Nehemiah also knows 
that in order to build Jerusalem, he doesn't just need um, fair economics. Nehemiah knows that the issue for this injustice and for this system goes deeper than that. Because any sociologist, any economist, micro or macro will tell you, hey, unfair interest rates are not good for the city. Like anybody would be able to look at that. Anybody that's secular would be able to go, hey, that's not gonna help the city stand on its own feet. That's not gonna help the systems that are in the city. But Nehemiah knows it goes deeper than that. It's not just about, Nehemiah doesn't come to these lenders and come to these nobles and go, hey guys, let me run through some macroeconomics for you real quick. And let me show you how the systems don't work out if we really wanna do this. He doesn't go there. Look at what Nehemiah does. When he is rebuking these nobles, he doesn't talk about the economy. Look at what he talks about. Verse nine, first sentence of verse nine, first 10 words of verse nine. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Okay, pause for just a minute. Just hold on. We just heard about this, like the, the borrower is the slave to the lender, and this doesn't create any kind of beauty or any kind of shalom in the New Jerusalem. And he knows the trickle-down effect of this, that they can never get out from under this, and the wealth gap is only going to get like this. Like, he knows all that. So why in the world is he talking about fear of the Lord? That phrase, by the way, was just an Old Testament credo that basically encompassed all that an ancient Jew would have believed about God. Aren't you, don't you know our Yahweh? Don't you know all that we claim to be true about him and about us? Don't you know the storyline and our, our, our belief in him? Have you no fear of the Lord? Aren't you a God-fearing Jew like them? So why in the world, if, if we have this economic injustice going on for Nehemiah, why is he talking about spiritual realities? Why is he taking on the social justice issue and going to their theology? It's because Nehemiah knows that for a righteous city to exist, it can only be built by righteous people. And if there's any unrighteousness, if there's any injustice, then there is a righteousness issue. There is a spiritual issue at play. Nehemiah knew that if the wealthy were exacting this enormous unpayable debt and interest on the payer, on the borrower, and he knew that if that was how they were handling their finances, how do you think those nobles and officials would handle their relationships? Like he knows this goes way deeper than just the bottom line on the, on, the, on the Jerusalem stock market at the end of the day. How do you think he knows, what kind of people are you gonna be in this society? What kind of relationships is this going to create in our world, in this city that we're trying to build? Nehemiah knew that he didn't just have an economic issue, he had a deeply spiritual one. So let me ask you this, is your view of social justice a spiritual issue? Does your spiritual life inform your view of justice? Do you know that the Bible cannot disconnect those two things? It does not. It will not allow it. Nehemiah is part of the proof of that. Do you know that in addition to the structures and systems and policies that need to be changed for Shalom to reign in Nashville, that we believe that those things will never be fully changed if we don't also address the spiritual root of those things? And do you know that no matter what political side you fall on, I'm not making any political comment here at all, but I don't care what end of the spectrum or moderate uh, lane you run in, do you know that you have a low and incomplete view of justice and beauty in this city if you don't connect the issues of this city to spiritual realities? 
If you don't bring your spiritual understanding of who the Lord is and who people are and what our mission here is and what God's vision for Nashville is, if you don't understand that, you have a low and incomplete view of justice and shalom. If you don't get to the root of the issues, we will never deal with the issues. So Nehemiah knows this is not just an economic and social issue. There's plenty of fallout there, but there is a spiritual reality here too. That if the people here were exacting financial debt like this, enslaving people financially like this, how more often or how much more often do you think they were also enslaving people with relational debt? Do you think that we ever hold people in relational debt and enslave people who have wronged us? Do you know that when someone sins against you, debt is accrued? There is a debt incurred. When someone sins against you, they owe you something. They owe you remorse, like acknowledging that what they've done hurt you. They, they owe you that. They owe you the remorse that they, 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 they took something from your God-given dignity and they stole part of that, they marred part of that, they wounded part of that. They owe you the comfort of empathy to say, hey, I'm so sorry. And, and, and I took something from you and, and I can't imagine how painful that might have been. Do you know they owe you the damages lost, like literal damages lost or spiritual and relational and emotional damages lost? That sinning against someone else creates debt. And I mean this in micro ways and macro ways. Micro spiritual economics and macro spiritual economics. Like in little $10 ways, when you sin against someone, when you gossip about them, when you don't see them in their best God-given light, you sin against them. You take something from them. Or in abusive ways and traumatic ways and lifelong ways, $10 million worth of debt. When sin happens, debt is happening. They owe you something. And because we live in a sinful world, a sin-stained world, people are constantly sinning against each other in big and small ways all the time, which means if that is true or since that is true, every day we have the opportunity in our hearts to not just incur debt between us, but to hold people in that debt that has happened. We have the ability to stand over someone after they have sinned against us and say, you now owe me a payment for this. And do you know how much power and control like these nobles and officials and wealthy people in Jerusalem, do you know how much power and control it gives you and I to hold people in relational debt to you? Do you know that like these lenders in Nehemiah, we love setting up relational and emotional systems in our our worlds to make it so that the debt that's been incurred against us could never actually be paid off. That I don't actually want a system that allows for you to get out of the debt that you now have against me. Because I love sitting above you, I love sitting on top of you, I love looking down at you and believing that the relational debt that now exists, you could never actually pay off. Like when your spouse treats you poorly, like on the way to church this morning, and maybe a $10 debt happened, maybe a, uh, a $10 debt happened that reminded you of a million dollar debt that they currently owe you. Do you know the dopamine hit that you get in your brain when you think about how you deserve to be treated better than that? And they're not doing it again, and now they owe you again. They owe you the remorse of it. They owe you what they've taken from you. They owe you all the costs that, that you've paid to try to heal that relationship. 
They owe you the acknowledgement of their sin and the acknowledgement that it must have really hurt you too. They owe you that. Or how about, do you know that when your parents show you just how out of touch they are with reality, how obtuse they are to the real world and that they don't get you and they could never actually truly understand you and they're so unwoke and they don't actually understand relational health and they're so emotionally stinted and they're so not with it. They haven't been to as much counseling as you have, so they don't get it. Do you know that when they then sin against you and prove how blindfully harmful they have been in relationship to you and your world, do you know the power and the position that gives you over them? And the thought of your parents getting out from under the debt that they owe you, the thought of making enough payments on the debt that they owe you to zero out that account seems impossible to you. There's like, hey, pastor, you don't know the debt that they've got. You don't know that this has been since I was five. You don't know the emotional shutdownness. You don't know the abuse. You don't know the neglect. You don't know the fact that I wasn't the favorite. You don't know the passive aggressiveness. You don't know the manipulation. You don't know the financial burden. You don't know any of that. You have no idea the amount of debt. It's not just how they handled Christmas time last year. It goes way farther back than that. And the thought of saying, is there any way they could ever pay that off for you? Is there any way that they could ever get out of that debt that they owe you for sinning against you? Seems preposterous, because here's what you would lose if you could actually let them pay that debt off. You'd lose your power over them. You'd lose your position over them. Feels so good to look down on them. Feels so good to feel like you're better than them. And if they pay it off and now there is no debt, I lose the feeling. So because we love the position and the power, we, like these wealthy people in Jerusalem, we create systems that people that are in relational debt to us could never pay off. They could never apologize enough, they could never change enough, they could never repent enough, they could never acknowledge enough, because we will pick holes in all of it. Here we go again, that was a manipulative apology that didn't even feel sincere. So we, even, even in the best possible like, path to paying it off, we never let the debt be canceled. We never let others get out of the relational debt that they owe us. This is with our spouses, this is with our roommates, it's with our siblings, it's with our parents, it's with our children. But look at what Nehemiah says that these debt owners ought to do. Look at what he says, those that own the debt, that have the borrowers as their slave, that could never pay it out, could never get out from under it. Look at his remedy for the socioeconomic and the spiritual issues before him, because it's both to him. It's systemic, social, and spiritual, and communal. Verse, the second half of verse 10 through verse 11. Can you throw this up there? Second half of verse 10 and verse 11. Look at what he says. He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. So Nehemiah is kind of jumping the gun, uh, but there was a practice in Jewish custom in, in, in Old Testament Israel called the sabbatical year every seven years. And he's saying, hey, I'm calling that now. In the sabbatical year, every seventh year, there was a lot of laws and regulations that went with it. But here's what would happen is any like land that you had accrued, any like inheritance or like estate that had become yours because of debt that you had let borrow out, 
went back to the original owner. And, 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 and it, and it, re, it kind of helped reset some of the economic wealth gap that was happening. And then every 50th year, this is crazy. Every 50th year, the seventh sabbatical year, the seventh seven, like the perfect years, it was, the, it was like right after that year, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. I wrote a paper on it at seminary. It'll blow your mind. It's actually really good economics too. But here's, here's what would happen. On the 50th year, all debts are canceled. Everything. Everything you've ever gotten because of debt, every person you've ever owned, every land you've ever added to your own estate, all of it went back to the original owner. All of it. Year of Jubilee. Nehemiah's like echoing that right here and saying, hey, this is a part of our law. And this is creating a system right now that we don't want for the new Jerusalem. We don't want it. And so I'm calling you right now. Here's what Nehemiah just said. The solution for Nehemiah with all of the debt and all of the enslavement that was going on, here's what he said. Cancel the debt. Don't just stop exacting the interest. That was the first part. Don't just make the payments more fair to them. Cancel the debt. That's what he says to them. Forgive the loan. Give it all back. Everything they owe you, give it back to them. Forgiveness is a term that literally means canceling the debt. To forgive someone that is in relational and emotional debt to you means that you cancel the debt of what is owed to you. You cancel what they owe you. Which has some consequences. Because here's what that means. That if you cancel the debt that someone owes you, guess who that means is paying the debt off? You are. The forgiver pays the debt. Imagine this, I owe you $100 would never happen. I'll be dead before I owe you $100, okay? But here's, if I owe you $100 and you came to me and said, oh, you're my pastor, I love you. Uh, Let's cancel that debt. Let's not exact the payment from you. If you canceled the debt that I owed you $100, guess what that doesn't mean? You don't go to your bank account and Bank of America says, you know, that was really kind. Here's $100 because of the kindness that you offered to your measly old pastor. That doesn't happen. If I owe you $100 and you cancel the debt, who takes the hit for that? You do. You're $100 less rich than you could have been had you exacted it from me. The forgiver of the debt eats the cost. You suffer the cost. You suffer the loss when you cancel the debt of what is owed to you. The forgiver pays the debt. And so we may be fans of forgiveness in theory. It may sound great until we understand that forgiveness means paying the debt ourselves. It's really hard work. And so here's what, here's what we tend to do. I know that Christians are supposed to be about forgiveness and so I'm not supposed to like, you know, I'm not supposed to hold this debt over them. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm not just gonna forgive it outright. I'm gonna make them make a few payments. I'm gonna make them make a few relational deposits and make sure that I know that they're serious about wanting to pay it off and then I'll cancel it. We require that they pay off parts of their debt before we cancel it. We require some form of emotional or relational payment before we forgive them. But Nehemiah doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, go back to all the people that you've enslaved, and if they show you that they really want to pay it off, then cancel it. He says, cancel the debt. Financially and emotionally, cancel the debt. And so who, who pays that cost? Like Old Testament Israel, Nehemiah, building this new Jerusalem, who's he asking to pay the debt? The owners, 
the landowners, the nobles, the officials, the wealthy, you take the hit for them. So what would that look like relationally for us? What, what would that actually mean? In, in real life for you and me and all the relational debt that we love holding people in and what they have to prove to us before we might think about canceling the debt they owe us. It would mean that without a hint of bitterness or self-righteousness, without an ounce of superiority or a seed of a grudge, you take the hit. You don't require payment from them. And then here's this, here's, here's, here's the gut punch of it. When you cancel the debt on someone, if you've truly canceled the debt for them, relationally and emotionally, here's what it means. You treat them like they owe you nothing because they don't. If you have canceled the debt for them, they don't owe you anything. But here's what we like to do. I mean, I'll forgive you. I'll cancel the debt. I won't make you pay. But if it ever comes up again, I'm reminding you the moment that it happens. I'm also gonna let you know how much work it's taken for me to get to this place and how exhausting it is. I'm gonna let you know, like I'm gonna cancel the $100 relational debt, but boy, you're gonna hear about it. Now to be clear, before we, before we dive down this a little bit more, I, I gotta be really clear about this. Forgiving other people's debt, canceling the debt, does not mean being their best friend. It does not mean reconnecting with them and having no boundaries. It certainly does not mean acting like the wound and the pain and the scars aren't there. That's called abuse. That's not what we're talking about. Forgiveness means in your heart, can you cancel the debt against them and treat them like they don't owe you anything because you have canceled their debt? Even if, this is so scary to think about, even if they never even acknowledged to you that there was a debt to begin with. Lewis Smedes famously said that forgiveness is setting the captives free and then realizing that you were the one in the cell. Like what if holding people in debt was actually destroying you? What if you were the one that was in chains because you were holding people in debt? And forgiveness is setting the captives free, canceling all the debt, and then realizing, oh my goodness, I'm not drowning in bitterness anymore. I'm not suffocating in self-righteousness anymore. Forgiveness is something that we may have to do a thousand times to people over and over and over and over again. Canceling the debt canceling the debt. I know we have to do it over and over again every time our hearts bring up the wound again and remind us of it. And they, the offending party, may have no clue the amount of hours you have spent talking, processing, praying, weeping, and crying over trying to forgive this debt. They may not have a clue about it. And forgiving them doesn't mean looking like, man, our relationship is fully restored and now we never have to imagine ever being sad or separated ever again. No, actually forgiving them, listen to this, forgiving people that have sinned against you will let you set up healthy boundaries with them. If you, don't, if you don't forgive them, you will have no clue what a healthy boundary is. It's not possible. There's too much that they owe you. But if you've forgiven them, if you've canceled the debt, you can have massively healthy boundaries with them. You don't have to talk to them for years if you've forgiven them. So I want you to imagine someone. Imagine someone that's hurt you. If you haven't 
had enough caffeine this morning, just imagine someone that like hurt your feelings on the way here this morning, like a spouse, like a $10 debt that happened this morning for the way that they got dressed this morning, okay? Just imagine a little, a little something. If you had enough caffeine or courage this morning, I want you to go way deep. I want you to imagine someone who has sinned heavily against you. I want you to imagine someone who has incurred a massive debt against you. I want you to remember the pain they've caused. I want you to remember their arrogance of the fact that they've never acknowledged the pain to you or the debt that they owe you. They've made zero payments in your mind on the wounds that they've caused you. And now I want you to imagine canceling all their payments. You require or demand nothing from them. And then you treat them as if they owe you nothing. Now, I know that sounds painful at first. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But can any part of you, like Lewis Smead said, can any part of you imagine the bliss of that idea of being free of not having to exact payments from people and always looking out and always balancing the scales and always wondering if they're ever gonna get any better and always wondering, is this ever gonna, are they ever gonna make any payments to me or do I just get to stay bitter and stay self-righteous? Can any part of you like see the, the gate swing open and imagine the field that lays before you from your jail cell and cell? That sounds so much better. That sounds liberating to not have people in debt to me. And if you can imagine the bliss of that, what kind of city or society or community do you think that would create if we were all doing that all the time? Like what, what, kind, of, what kind of little Jerusalem would that create in our city if, if, if everybody that, that called Midtown home never held people in debt? Because we're always sinning against each other and so we're constantly forgiving each other and constantly not treating people like they owed us anything. What kind of, merit, what kind of home do you think that would create for your children? What kind of friend group do you think that would create for, for your small group? What, what kind of city do you think that would create for your office or your profession or your vocation? Like what, can you imagine the like, oh my gosh. And so you can start to see how Nehemiah would go, we've got to stop this right now. Because we're building the new Jerusalem and it starts right now. You can see why Nehemiah was so adamant about it. But before we get to the bliss of that city, if we're honest, the first step of that exercise of going, oof, sounds painful, sounds terrifying. Of course it does. Imagine these lenders in Jerusalem who owned everybody and owned the slaves, and owned, they were getting massive estates. They had vineyards and farmlands, and they had, they had people now working for them that owed them, and they would never get out of it. You're asking me to do what now? You, you want me to cancel the debt for who now? So let's just say in your honest moment that you hear that idea of canceling all the debt payments that people owe you. Imagine you hear that and you go, I can't do it. Or maybe a little bit more honest, I won't do it. I'm not gonna do it. I don't even know you, Elliot. I don't trust you. <laughs> I don't trust Nehemiah. He shook, he, you know, he shook his shirt out at people. I don't know. I don't, I don't trust any of this. <laughs> what does it say about us, the individual, when we can't cancel debts? Well, it's not just that we're greedy, 
Spiritual reality would say that we're insecure. Because holding people in debt gives us such a sense of power and control. So it's the fragile and the weak and the brittle. It's the insubstantial who hold people in debt. We're afraid. Because if I forgive you, that means I've got to treat you like you owe me nothing. If I have to treat you like you owe me nothing, I can't look down on you anymore. I can't think that I'm, I'm more mature than you. I can't, I can't really see who you really are, but just be kind to you like when, I, when, I, when we have interactions. I have to actually deal with the fact that, I, that you and I would be on equal playing ground. And, and that sounds terrifying because man, it feels good to sit up here and look down on you. Man, it feels good to feel like I'm the victim and I deserve so much. And now if I've got to cancel all of what you owe me, that sounds terrifying. But forgiveness takes real strength. If you're gonna cancel debt for people that they owe you, you will need a strength beyond your own. So where would we get that strength? The Christian knows that that strength comes from the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because at its most primitive, it's not the only thing that the gospel offers us, but at its most primitive, the gospel is all about the canceling of debts. That when Jesus hung naked on crossbeams and he said the Aramaic word to telestai, that word means it is finished. And it was, but for the first century Jew, for the first century readers of that account, here's what that word also meant. It was an economic term. It was a banking term. It was a lending term. Testelestai was the word that was stamped on the paper. It was, it, was, it was bolted in. This debt has been paid. It's finished. There's no more debt to pay, Testelestai. And so when Jesus says that hanging on the cross, he's saying, Christian, you don't owe me anything. The debt's been paid. And who pays the debts in forgiveness? The one who owned the debt. The forgiving one pays the cost. Michael Kelly Blanchard famously wrote, every debt you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of our Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad. Every debt you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of our Lord. That because of Jesus, you are one that stands before the Lord with no debt. You owe God nothing. And get this, he treats you like you owe him nothing. That your sin put you in debt to him. That you rob him of his glory and your sin steals his honor because you were made in his image. And in turn, we spit on his worthiness and we declare our autonomy and we defecate on his holiness and we betray his beauty. And every time we do, we accrue a debt against the Almighty. And yet, hear the words of Jesus before he says to tell us thy. Listen to what he says as he hangs as the crucified one. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let me translate that a different way. Father, cancel their debt. They don't even know how much they owe. Don't require a penny from them and take my payment instead. They don't even know how bad it is. 
that when you hear Jesus hanging naked saying that to you, forgive them. They don't even know how much they owe. Here's what that should shift in you. Jesus doesn't forgive like we forgive. Jesus doesn't require even acknowledging how bad it is before he offers you a canceled debt. You owe God nothing. You don't owe him proof of how sorry you are. You don't owe him deeds that will chip away at the debt and make small payments over your lifetime. You don't even owe him awareness of just how badly you have offended him. Jesus doesn't forgive like we forgive. He doesn't even require your awareness of the debt before he pleads with the Father to forgive it. If you're honest, there are elements of yourself that are completely and utterly indefensible. You stand on no justified ground in your life. You have a debt that you cannot pay. And the son of God, who is also the judge of all the earth, has taken the hit, he has paid the debt, and he offers you a canceled account free of charge. So here's where we get the strength to forgive those that have sinned against us. Here's where we get the strength to cancel the debt that we have in our relationships. As forgiven one, as forgiven one, as a, as a singularly forgiven person, as one who owes nothing, freely you have been given, so freely give. Freely you have been pardoned, so freely pardon. If we had time, we would dive through Matthew 18 where Jesus tells a startling parable about astronomical debt that's canceled from the king to a layperson. And then that layperson has seemingly the inability to let that debt cancellation flow through him to those that owe him money. And Jesus has some harsh words, harsh words, for those of us that have been forgiven but can't forgive. You will only ever cancel debts in your life if you know how massive the debt is that has been paid for you. Do you need strength to forgive? Be forgiven. Do you need strength to cancel the debts in your life? Then you need to get really in touch with just how much you've marred the image of God in you and in others. You need to get really close to understanding how much debt you owe and then behold Jesus who comes to you and says with great joy and a smile on his face, welcome to my kingdom where the king treats his children like they owe him nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, we've marred your image. We've incurred a debt. And you hang before us the crucified one that says to us, it's finished. We stand before you as those that owe you nothing because of the blood of Jesus. So as free children who need your strength to do this, may your mercy and forgiveness flow through us. May Midtown be the kind of place that stands on the strength of being forgiven, stands on the strength of, can of the canceled debt on our behalf that we might do that in our own lives. Would we be a place that has been freely lavished upon that we might freely lavish others with the same kind of love in your name, amen.